Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Kyle and Katie and team. Um, you can sing that song any day, Katie. Good morning, River City. We're glad you're with us today. If you need a Bible, you can slip your hand up and someone from our strike team um, can get one to you. Um, whether or not you know this, uh, I don't know why we started calling them a strike team. It sounds kind of like action-packed. Um, so maybe, that's, maybe you're thinking, hey, I'd like to serve somewhere. Um, it's not actually that action-packed, although it is helpful. Um, folks from our strike team um, come a little bit early, help prep coffee, uh, make sure that the, the, the room is, is set and available, and then hand out Bibles and greet people as they come in. And so if that's a place that you're like, hey, I, it's a simple first step, I, maybe I could help and serve in that way. I'm just going to invite you. You can talk to me, or you can talk to Berndt, who is here in the tub with Ellie, um, uh, who gives uh, leadership to our strike team. And with that, welcome to November. Yes, it is November. How many of you are excited that it's November? How many of you are like, why is it already November? Anybody? It's about half and half. Okay, we're about, we're about split. Well, welcome. It's already here. We can't do anything about that, so let's just enjoy it. We are continuing a series called What We Believe, uh, taking time to highlight some of our core beliefs and core practices here as a church, so that we better understand them, so that we better understand how the scriptures inform those beliefs and practices and what they mean for us as we walk by faith. So today we're looking at the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. They are often referred to as twin graces because they work hand in hand as signs of the sovereign covenantal promises of God. And they're both practices in which we are called to participate as believers in the context of our local church. Now, I know there are many different backgrounds and experiences surrounding baptism and communion here today, so I want to unpack these two ordinances where we see them in the scriptures and how we understand and practice them here. It's important for us, not just for the practice of it, But I think baptism and communion are important for us, for our spiritual health, and for our growth in grace. As individual believers, sorry, there's people back here, lots more people over here now. Uh, As we grow as believers and as the local church, we have a section in our doctrinal statement outlining our position on the ordinances. It'll be on the screen. It reads like this, on the ordinances. We believe the Lord Jesus has committed two ordinances to the local church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that Christian baptism is the public declaration of a believer's faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. And we believe that immersion of the believer into water in the name of the triune God is the richest expression of the New Testament example. We believe that the Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ for the commemoration of His Death, And we believe that these two ordinances should be observed and administered until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we often will use the term ordinance and sacrament. Uh, We will use them interchangeably, and we have no problem using them interchangeably. If I actually use those words interchangeably here today, don't be surprised. You might have a difference of opinion on that, and that's okay. We can talk after, but we've just decided we're going to use them interchangeably. And we believe that, as Devin said this morning, that both baptism and communion, too, are outward signs of inward realities. They are outward signs 
of inward realities. They complement and build on one another. And we'll talk about that more. We're going to look at the scriptures that outline these twin graces and then tackle them one at a time. First, let's look at baptism. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, if you would. It'll be on the screen as well. It's the uh, end of the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew 28 opens with the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And from there, it kind of skips past a number of days and a number of other details that we read in the other Gospels about Jesus appearing to his disciples. And it kind of fast-forwards us to Jesus commissioning his disciples with the mission of the Gospel because he's preparing to leave them and ascend to heaven. Let's pick up verse 16 of Matthew 28. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed him. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. As a pause, um, Pastor Matt Chandler said, can you, can you imagine the picture? Like Jesus has now been risen from the grave for, for many days and has shown himself. And now they're going to the mountain where he's going to ascend to the sky. And some guys are standing there going, yeah, I still don't know. Can you imagine? And yet it shows a little bit of the reality of, of our humanity in this, right? I just, I, I love that little picture. It's this little simple, and yet there was still some, some doubt. We'll continue. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Right here in, in Jesus' commissioning of his disciples is a command to baptize new disciples of Jesus. The last thing he leaves his disciples with is this instruction. Go and make disciples. And I kind of read it this way. So go and make disciples of, of all nations. How do we do that? Well, you baptize and you teach. And we see here in Jesus' words this command to baptize. The question is, what does it mean and why is it important? Baptism is an identification. When you are baptized, you are baptized into something. You are aligning yourself with something or someone. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that if you are baptized into Christ Jesus, he says we are baptized into his death and that we are buried with him in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might now walk in newness of life. Being baptized into Christ Jesus is being baptized into his death. So just as he was raised from the dead, as we come up out of the water, it signifies now we walk in newness of life. This morning, we witnessed some public baptisms. Disciples of Jesus professing faith in Jesus alone as God's promised Savior. And they were brought down under the water. And if we left them there, they would actually die. But we don't leave them there. Amen. We pull them back up from the water identifying with the, 
the burial, the death and burial of Jesus, and the resurrection life that is now flowing through them. We see baptism as the expression, then the sign, if you will, for all of those who have been brought from death to life. It is an act of outward, grace-bought obedience that we would align ourselves with the death and resurrection of Christ in this way, confirming outwardly the change that has happened by grace through faith already in the heart. And we hold to the position that believers in Jesus should upon profession of faith, enter the waters of baptism as a sign of their identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is also one of the reasons why we practice baptism by immersion. Not only does the Greek word for baptism here often mean, not always, but often has connotations of dipping and dunking, but is the clearest picture we see of both death, burial, and resurrection. That, after all, John was called John the Baptist. So we're just going to hang our hat on that one. Now when Jesus says, go and baptize, this is how we intend to practice that. So what does this mean for you as an individual, and what does it mean for us as a church? First, and the most obvious uh, application is asking a simple question. Have you been baptized? Now, I believe that a case can be made that a baptism by sprinkling or pouring of an infant can be considered valid as a baptism if it is done in the name of the triune God and with an understanding that it has no power to actually save or wash away sins. Many Presbyterians and some brothers and sisters from Lutheran backgrounds would fall into this camp as well as some other Protestants. But um, there are other even Christian theological positions on baptism that don't fall into those two camps. And so we would view those differently. For us, theology of baptism, what it is, is essential. But the mode of baptism we would consider important, but not essential. What I mean by that is here at River City, if baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality, it means that we will not attempt to bind your conscience and say you must be baptized by immersion. We may believe differently how that sign should be applied and when it should be applied. And I would argue that if your conscience would keep you from being baptized by immersions on those grounds, scriptural grounds, and I'm not going to twist your arm, but I will say it's irregular. And you're welcome to be a member at River City Church, even not baptized by immersion, provided you aren't working against our position of baptism of believers by immersion. But I will argue unapologetically that it is the regular and consistent practice that believers in Jesus, upon profession of faith in Christ Jesus, be baptized by immersion based on Matthew 28 and Romans chapter 6, identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So I ask again, if you've not been baptized, can I ask you why not? And again, your answers to that might be varied, and there might be good reason. But let me ask you to consider them. Because to me, this seems like the natural next step to profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, an application from this sermon, we're asking you to consider if you have if you have been baptized to um, <clears throat> excuse me if you haven't been baptized to consider this call to publicly profess your faith in Jesus 
And we want to give you the opportunity to do that. Come find one of us after the service. Uh, talk to someone, maybe your community group leader. Come find uh, uh, me or Devin, uh, wherever Berndt is. He was here earlier. Berndt, there he is, or Charlie. We would love to talk with you, to hear your story, and to celebrate with you the grace of God in, in saving you. And maybe it means sticking around and being baptized uh, at 11 o'clock. In fact, we're going to even take a step of faith, and we're going to leave this baptism tank set up this week. We won't heat it all week, but we will heat it again next weekend. But we're going to leave it up in prayerful hope that some of you, even this morning, as a simple act of faithful obedience, would step into the waters of baptism even next Sunday. So our encouragement is that you would consider being baptized. Now, this isn't just an individual application. For us as the broader church, can I encourage you that baptism doesn't just mark someone's individual commitment to God, but also the commitment and connection to God's people. Throughout the New Testament, believers would be publicly baptized and they would be added and welcomed to the church to be loved, to be discipled, and to be encouraged by the local church. So when we as believers who have been baptized watch and, and participate, really, in someone else being baptized, we aren't just celebrating their private pr profession. Now, we are doing that, but we're not just doing that. If we are believers in Jesus as well, we are making a commitment to all three of these brother, uh, brothers and sister who, who went into the water today. We're making a commitment to them to walk with them, to pray for them. Because if they are in Christ Jesus, we are members of one another. Their baptism, their confession of faith strikes a chord within us that we belong together in the family of God. Co-heirs of the same promises of the kingdom. Baptism isn't just about them and their story, but it's about us. And more importantly, a tangible and visible reminder that Christ is building His church. And communion for us follows a similar pattern. We find communion instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You can turn there if you'd like. It'll be on the screen as well. Paul is giving the church in Corinth some instructions as it relates to what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Paul is recounting what has been recorded about the Lord's Supper as it's called in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Paul here in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11 says this, For what I received from the Lord... For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, we took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul is recounting 
and instructing the story of Jesus eating the Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus and his disciples, the night before he would be arrested, is celebrating the Passover in an upper room with them. And the Passover meal was a meal of remembrance. They were remembering that when God's people were slaves in Egypt, that he protected them. During the last plague of their time in Egypt, the instruction was to place the blood of a lamb over the doorposts of your home and that those who had the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their homes, their firstborns would be spared as the angel of death passed through the land. And what what they were remembering in Passover is that God had, by the blood, had passed over the curse of death. And what Jesus was saying at the Last Supper to his disciples, he's saying, I am your Passover lamb. Not just once, but for all time. And the blood of this lamb, as he holds up the cup, the blood of this lamb, this is the blood that is necessary to mark out the terms for a new covenant. As Devin quoted last week from Robertson, a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. And Jesus is saying, it's my blood. I'm initiating this covenant. I am sealing it, and I'm paying for it. So as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are proclaiming that Christ has died for sin and that his blood has secured for his people a new covenant, and that includes us. Now, there isn't built into these instructions specifics on how to take communion. Should we do it weekly or monthly? Should we all eat from one loaf of bread? Should we all drink from one shared cup? Should it be torn instead of cut? Should it be wine? Can it be juice? And we've chosen at this point in time to practice communion in this way. We practice it weekly. Weekly remembrance and participation in the Lord's Supper. And we'll get to why we do that here in a second. Two, we... We prepare the bread in such a way so that there's enough that we can all partake. We don't pass a loaf from one person to the next. We prepare it in this way. I suppose we could do that, but we're not going to. We do it in this way. We use grape juice, which we still believe qualifies as fruit of the vine, which could be either juice or wine in the Scriptures. And we are not opposed to serving wine at communion, but we haven't included it for use at this time. And we fence the communion table. What what I mean by that is we keep it open to all who are believers in Jesus, but we caution those who are not believers in Jesus to, to not take communion. And this comes from verses 27 through 29 of 1 Corinthians 11, if you keep reading a little bit. Whoever, therefore, Paul says, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If we're not in Christ, then the penalty for sins is still on us. The guilt of our sin is still on us. And so we would argue it's, it's foolishness, or even at worst mockery, to take the bread and the cup if you do not actually trust that Jesus is for you a Passover lamb. Now, there are differing opinions on this, but 
as a matter of importance, we practice communion in this way. Because as part of our corporate worship, like in baptism, in communion, we are rehearsing the gospel. This is why we take it weekly. It's part of our our corporate worship where we're walking through the story of the gospel. That God has made us. That because of sin, we are broken and we are separated from God. But it's by Christ and his grace to us that he welcomes us back into the family and purchases us, us by his own blood. And we celebrate together in communion that it is Christ who has purchased us and we go out rejoicing It's the pattern of the gospel that we practice. And so communion is part of our rehearsing of the gospel. Wayne Grudem has written one of the more widely respected textbooks on systematic theology. Uh, It's about yay thick. Uh, Sorry for those of you in the section over here, the garden section, yay thick. And he says it like this. Participation in the Lord's Supper is, he says this, very clearly a means of grace which the Holy Spirit uses to bring blessing to his church. He, he goes on, we should expect that the Lord would give spiritual blessing as we participate in the Lord's Supper in faith and obedience to the directions laid down in Scripture. And in this way, it's a means of grace, which the Holy Spirit uses to convey, convey blessings to us. In a very real way, when we celebrate together, when we worship, when we sit under the teaching of God's Word, when we take communion together, when we pray for one another, and in just a few moments when we're sent out of here, that should be a blessing for us as God's people. And it isn't merely a remembrance. It is not just a practice of remembering. But through the tangible components of communion, we're reminded that through the bread, we see the broken body of Jesus that was torn. And through the cup, we see the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And this is given to us by God to strengthen us. This is given to us as a church to bless us, to encourage us for our spiritual nourishment. And it is set up as a simple meal. It's called a a supper. And if this truly was our supper every day, that it, it's almost too simple, right? But it's meant to remind us that we are hungry, <laughs> that we are in need of mercy from Jesus. Eating and drinking is a, is a tangible reminder of our physical dependence, isn't it? In just a few minutes, you're going to leave here. Um, well, second service will be closer to lunch, but go with me. You're going to leave here and you're going to go have lunch. And then three or four hours after that, if your body's functioning at all relatively normally, you will be hungry again. Eating and drinking is a reminder of our dependence. We don't last forever. We eat and we eventually need to eat again. And eating and drinking the bread and the cup together as God's people is a reminder for us that we never lose our dependence on Jesus. We never lose our dependence, our need to be reminded of the simple gospel truths that Christ was broken for me. We never lose our dependence on the gospel, and so we rehearse it when we, together, when we examine, when we confess, and when we remember in our eating and drinking that Christ is the one who suffered and died. 
And that union that we share by the Holy Spirit with one another and with Christ Jesus is strengthened and solidified in communion. We together proclaim the death of Christ for us. And this encourages and strengthens our faith as the Spirit is working within us. So as Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, this is how we intend to do that. And in just a few moments, we're going to invite you to participate in communion. Now, what does this mean for you as the individual, and what does it mean for us as a church? For you as the individual, or for me as the individual, the the individual believer and follower of Jesus, the Lord's Supper, a few things happen. The Lord's Supper does serve as a spiritual filter to catch any hidden or unconfessed sin. We are encouraged to examine ourselves. So it's designed as a grace by God to serve as a filter. So in a few minutes, when we invite you to communion, we're going to invite you to a quiet moment of self-reflection and not just internal navel-gazing, but saying, Spirit of God, who dwells and lives within me, illuminate the dark places of my heart that anything, anything that would be remaining of the flesh and the old self would be exposed that I could confess it and walk in newness of life and no longer carry around the burden and guilt of that sin and shame because it's been paid for by Jesus. We're going to ask you to examine yourself. Uh, Also, we ask you to participate regularly because this is for you a time of spiritual renewal, that God will meet you there. And it also might be that there's some turmoil between you and a brother or sister in Christ. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is teaching his listeners to humbly deal with those issues as soon as you can. He says this, if you are offering your gift at the altar and, there's a mem- or a, and you, there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, I don't think this means you have to always drop everything to not take communion and leave. Like a bunch of you just like got up and left right now, I would assume that you're all going to deal with unresolved issues with brothers and sisters in Christ. You should do that. It's like being reminded. You're like, call your mom. Why? She probably wants to hear from you. That's free advice. Call your mom. But beyond that, what, part of what's being said here is like, call your brother or sister in Christ. And so I'm not saying you must get up and leave right now before you take communion. What Jesus is teaching on in terms of offering gifts might be a little bit different. Although, my encouragement might be, in your time of self-examination, if the Holy Spirit of God is saying, hey, you, you and, your, and your sister in Christ, you got a little something going on, there's some conflict, as much as it pertains to you, as much as it depends on you, how can you pursue that person? Because communion is not only for the individual, but for the church communal as well. See, the Lord's Supper does function like a spiritual filter to catch any of our unchecked pride or or hidden sin or bitterness that we might be holding against one another. It's intended to serve just as much to catch any bitterness or frustration between one another as much as it is any hidden or unconfessed sin. We are being given the opportunity every week, here at River City at least, by grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually deal with stuff. And it's not always easy and it's not always clean cut. But it's being offered to us by God's grace to to do that. 
Second, there is something I think we often miss with our enlightened and Western understanding of food, right? We take pictures of it and post them in two-by-two squares to an unnamed social media site. Everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like, oh, tacos, right? By the way, tacos are delicious. But more than just calories for survival, there is something special about breaking bread with someone. In an ancient Near East cultures and the, the culture surrounding the time of the New Testament, in, and in many places around the world even today, there is added meaning in a shared meal that I think we sometimes just miss. We kind of take it lightly and we, we miss it. it. It says something when we break bread together, two people sharing like the same loaf of bread, for example, that there's something here now that we share. Two of us are eating together. We're taking from the same thing and eating together. We both have this now within us is, is kind of what's happening. And a commonality is developed around the table and a bridge is built. We now have this same thing inside of each of us. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, just the chapter before, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So it's designed to unite us to one another. We share in this meal together. This shared meal is a corporate confirmation that we are growing in grace together. We can't separate out our individual participation in the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus from our shared participation in the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. We can't separate the two. Sam Imadi serves as a senior editor for an organization called Nine Marks. They've got some really great resources if you're ever interested. Um, I highly respect and recommend what they have. Um, and he, he says this that I found helpful as it relates to communion. He says this, Communion serves as the God-ordained means whereby the entire congregation exercises its authority to strengthen and encourage our personal sense of assurance. Let me just say that again. Communion serves as a God-ordained means by which the entire congregation exercises its authority to strengthen and encourage our personal sense of assurance. He, he continues, he says it this way. In baptism, the church is telling the believer, or the believer tells the church, I think I'm a Christian. And the church is responding back in celebration saying, we do too. And in communion, the church is then responding. As we stand up as believers and take the bread and the cup, Christ died for me. When we do that together in this context, the church is telling each individual believer, we still think you're a Christian. Now, we don't know all the ins and outs of the stuff you're wrestling with or your doubts or your fears, but we are confirming the inner reality of what it means to be saved, and we are encouraging one another in that. So as we gather around the table, we are proclaiming to one another, brother or sister, if you're at this table, be emboldened, be encouraged, and be assured of the love of Christ Jesus for you. And it's kind of like, if you're familiar with the old hymn, when we take communion, when we are baptized, we are in a sense singing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste, right? You know the hymn? And in communion and baptism, 
we are calling out to one another in a similar way, blessed assurance, Jesus is yours. And we are building each other up in that truth. So here's, here's the two pieces of, of application as we close today. One, let me just echo the words of Jesus, that the kingdom of God is at hand. That Jesus has come to save us by being for us a sacrificial lamb. To take our sins on his body and to give us his perfections. And through him we have redemption. Let me invite you today, if you haven't trusted Jesus, to trust Jesus today. Today's the day of salvation. And we'd love to pray with you and perhaps even celebrate you with you in the waters of baptism. What's stopping you even today? And if you have trusted Jesus, but you haven't gone down in the waters of baptism for various reasons, expressing outwardly the inward change from death to life, I just want to encourage you to consider it. We'd love to talk to you about that. And the second bit of application today is happening right now as we move into a time of communion. We want to call you to look again at the sacrifice of Jesus. We want to give you space to confess your sins, to, to rest in the forgiveness that is yours. And we want to proclaim again together with the saints at River City, Jesus is ours. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you meet us exactly where we are. That you don't hold us at arm's length till we clean ourselves up enough. But you have reached to us in Christ Jesus and have loved us so completely. And our response is one of gratitude. Would you help us this morning to, to see with fresh eyes the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ for us and respond with confession and with joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.